Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, a former Prime Minister speaks out in the clash between the US and China. Was it good for Nancy Pelosi to visit Taiwan this week? No, in my opinion it was reckless if you want to be kind. Um, it was provocative and it was actually dangerous. Then, a new National Party president has just been named. We're going to take you live to the party conference. And one of the world's best-known Polynesian playwrights wants to become a politician. And he's got some thoughts on how New Zealand treats Pacific migrants. It's people right in our backyard. Baristas, you know, lawyers, doctors. We just go, oh, fruit pickers. It's like the last thing. It's like, OK, we'll get, let someone to pick fruit. We will have that interview for you shortly. But first, it has been a tense few days in the diplomatic standoff between China and the US. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi defied warnings from Beijing and became the most senior US figure to visit Taiwan in 25 years. China responded with military exercises and by firing ballistic missiles into the waters around Taiwan. But is it all pomp and bluster, or could the intensifying diplomatic feud end up in a military conflict? And what does it mean for us? One person with a unique insight is former Prime Minister Sir John Key. His government fostered a very close relationship with China, and he's met with Chinese President Xi Jinping on several occasions. I began by asking Sir John to assess the current relationship between China and the West. Yeah, look, I think it's deteriorated considerably. If you think from sort of my time when I was Prime Minister starting in 2008, I think if you got up and I got up as Prime Minister and talked about China, it was seen as a positive thing. It was seen as an opportunity for jobs. And it was seen as actually a catalyst for taking the world out of the global financial crisis, the one economy that was strong and with capacity. And I think over time, that's, that, that, that situation and that feeling has changed. Um, I remain actually very much positive on China mm. and happy to give my reasons why. But I think what really changed was Donald Trump. I think at some point he changed the global narrative, believe it or not, on China. And, and really for his own domestic reasons. He, he basically viewed trade always as a, as a, not as a win-win situation, but mm. as a win-lose situation with a very large imbalance between the United States and China, he basically got up and said, look, they don't play fair, they steal intellectual property, they don't have proper labour laws, and you, the, the, the workers of the Rust Belt and others, mm. you've lost your job because of China, and therefore they're the bogeymen. And I think that, that sort of got hold around the world, and I think that led to lots of other things, and so yeah, the situation's deteriorated. Do, do, does the Chinese leadership bear any responsibility for this? Well, ultimately what happened, I think, if you add in not only the rhetoric around trade and all the other mm. things that were going on, there was then, of course, um, coronavirus, and, of course, with COVID, um, Donald Trump wasn't too, uh, too slow at coming out calling it the China virus. And I think there was a point, actually, a few mm. years ago where the Chinese leadership just said, look, enough's enough. I'm kind of sick of being used as a doormat and, a, you know, sort of a, a rattling the cage from the United States. And I think they did change. They, their ambassadors became far more outspoken. I think they said, "We're not, you know, enough's enough. We're going to, you know, not sort of put up with this." And so there was a change. But equally, you know, if you look at it, since mm. Mao really, um, the, the the Chinese leadership and the Communist Party decided that there would be a two-term limit for their presence. And President Xi Jinping changed those rules. He made himself the head of the military, the head of the party, the head of the, um, the government. Mm and has changed his, you know, given himself unlimited term limits. So that has changed some concerns. Yeah, what do you have. think of that shift? Look, the term I, limits. 
I'm not personally concerned at one level because you can sit there and say, well, we have leaders that last, you know, mm. three terms, for, for instance, and, and, and many others. Um, you it's can, quite different. It's, though, it's isn't driven it? by the will of the people. Yeah, but, yeah. but ultimately, ultimately, even in a country like China, I mean, many people watching this will never agree with me. They'll say, well, if you don't have a democracy, you can't get rid of someone. But actually, the Arab Spring showed that even if you have an authoritarian sort of um, leadership or mm. one that certainly where there's no voting capacity, if you like, um, that if, if the people, the masses don't like it, you can change. I think the bigger issue really is that in some respects, change is a healthy thing. I think it's why the Americans have a two-term limit, that they sort of perceive after a period of time, it's actually good to have change and good to have fresh thinking. That's, that's so, so would it be good for China, do you think, in a global context, if China were to change its leader? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's, it's ultimately... That's what you were saying. Yeah, ultimately, I, I'm just saying that in terms of any leadership, it doesn't really matter whether mm. you're the president of a country or the CEO of a business. Mm. If there is never change, then I think ultimately you get tied in the way that you do things. Now, you know, how long will Xi Jinping stay? I don't know. Um, is it, would is it be it good though if he, if he was to if he was to leave? Oh, look! Ultimately, it's not for me to opine on that. I think what I can tell you is he's he's popular in China. Mm. I think not with everyone, but he is popular, and he's he's in many respects probably been a very good leader for them. If the measurement of that is lifting people out of poverty, and you've had literally hundreds of millions of Chinese people have had a significant improvement in their standard of living, is he an authoritarian leader? Well, he's. He, he's complete, if you like, in the sense that he's wanted to rule the military, the party and the government. And that's an, obviously an enormous amount of power mm. in a country the size of China. Mm. But then you can argue, well, you know, that's been the most efficient way of doing things. Like anything, you, mm. know, you, you know, you can worry if there's too much power, but you, you do have a system where they have the Politburo. There are yeah. some checks and balances on the president. So, so is he authoritarian? Ah, uh, look... <laughs> It's not for me really to be the the great judge of. Well, you're quite close to them, though. You did. You, I mean, you've spent quite like a lot of time. With them. I personally like them. Yeah. You know, I think there are there are strengths and weaknesses in every leader and in everything that mm. they do. What all I can tell you is the relationship I had with them, and that was actually, to be honest, he was extremely trustworthy, very open, um, consistent, mm -hmm. treated treated the relationship. Um, of mutual, with mutual respect, actually. Was it good for Nancy Pelosi to visit Taiwan this week? No. In my opinion, it was reckless, if you want to be kind. Um, it was provocative, and it was actually dangerous. And I say that because, really, if you think about it, I mean, everybody understands how, how significant that step is. And whether the President of the United States, Joe Biden, could stop her or not, um, it, she hasn't changed her position, by the way. She's had a consistent view on this matter. Mm. But everyone knows that if the third most important elected official in the United States turns up on Taiwanese uh, territory, that is poking the bear. And the question is, for what benefit? I mean, for instance, if you take New Zealand, we have long held a one-China policy, which means we yeah. accept one country, many systems. And we have accepted that actually China has territorial authority over Taiwan, as they do over Hong Kong. So uh, you have to say, well, why is Nancy Pelosi doing that? And why is she doing that at the end of her political career? And the answer is because she wants to make a personal stand. I understand that. But at what cost when that's already putting enormous tension and increased tension on the Taiwan Straits. Would you go to Taiwan? No. I mean, I went actually in 2003, mm. funnily enough. I went as um, a, a sort of junior backbencher, if you like, um, for the 
presidential election of President mm. Chen. And that's, that's the way the New Zealand government deals with that. If there is a presidential change or a, a particular event, they'll send someone from the opposition. Mm. Um, to be blunt, they send someone pretty junior. And I, and I, I couldn't get much more junior than me back in 2003. I was like, I was 26 out of 27, and Morris Williamson at that point was 27. I had been 27, but there were some changes there. But, I mean, you wouldn't um, go in, in a private capacity as, now as the former no, Prime No, and I, wouldn't, I would never have gone as Prime Minister, and I wouldn't have sent a minister. On Thursday night, China responded through China's ambassador to New Zealand with an extraordinary statement in which they said that the US had, quote, pushed the world to a dangerous brink. China responded by firing missiles into Japan's territorial waters. New Zealand shipping has been disrupted. Yeah. How does this end? Well, hopefully it ends with everyone taking a calm, deep, breath mm. and having a step back and that was that's my point about it being provocative I mean it's not like if the Americans do this mm. and Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan as she did that there would be no response from the Chinese side so you know that's going to escalate events and to, to what point because if you just take a step back from a New Zealand mm. point of view for a second I mean literally tens, hundreds of thousands of New Zealand's jobs and incomes rest on the fact that our largest trading partner is China. And we sell a lot of goods there. Um, there's a lot of investment there and there's a lot of trade you know, between our countries. And so when we sort of sit there and have that potentially disrupted, and, and it, let's be blunt, in a very fragile world at the moment where inflation is bluntly out of control, some economies are very stressed. Mm. Um, is this another dimension that we want to add and another confusion and, and an impediment to the supply chains. I, I, look, personally, I, as I, say, I think it's self-serving what she did. What is the likelihood that China will invade Taiwan? Uh, personally, I think extremely unlikely in, in the short term. I mean, I think if you're asking them to give up their territorial authority over Taiwan, that will not happen. That will not happen. They, they believe that they have that authority and they're happy to live with different mm -hmm. systems, but they are never, in my opinion, going to say Taiwan is not ours in the same way that they're not going to say that with Hong Kong. Mm. But on the other side of the coin, um, if you look at the way they dealt with Hong Kong when you had the issues um, a, a few years ago, on the one hand, they yes, they parked up some military capability mm. on the borders and there was lots of discussion and rhetoric. And I'm not saying everything was perfect, but if you think about it, they didn't go into Hong Kong. Mm. Lots of people said they would, they didn't. Um, so you know, my, my view would be, it's not in anyone's interest, it's not in China's interest, mm. and it's not in the United States' interest for this thing to go to the next step, and mm. we should all hope that it doesn't. There will be some people watching this who say that you are being very defensive of China's position. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, yeah. I mean, they're, you know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, look at their behaviour over the last couple yeah. of years. They've been incredibly assertive in the South Pacific. Uh, Hong Kong has lost, in the eyes of many, yep. the independence, for want of a better yep. term, that it enjoyed previously. You have the human rights abuses in, in Xinjiang. I'm going to ask you that question one more time. What responsibility does China bear for all of this? Yeah, so let's uh, call the spade a spade. Uh, most people would disagree with me. If you look at the general rhetoric coming mm. from leaders these days, they don't adopt the position that I'm saying, mm. and, and there's definitely been a change in attitude. And actually, it's not just on the left of politics. Mm. On the left and the right of politics, there's been a hardening of attitudes to Do you feel isolated China. in your position? Uh, no, but I'll, t and I'll tell, sort of tell you why. Mm. Firstly, are any of these issues really new? 
whether it's China in the South Pacific, China playing a, having an increasing presence in the Pacific, Hong whether Kong. it's China's relationship with Hong Kong and the way it deals with some of those issues, whether it's the plight of the Uyghurs, whether it's human rights, all of these things were around in my time. Mm. What was different, probably, was there was a view held by not just me, lots of leaders, I think, then, that you can have, you can have any sort of relationship you want, but if you build a better relationship through mm. trade, does it give you a, an increase in better platform to present change going forward and to have influence? And I personally think you do. And then so, again, with China, we worked with them in the Pacific mm. to have joint and shared projects like a water reticulation plant in, in the Cox. So, yeah. Do I think it's great that, that they're trying to build their capability and presence? They're probably not. I'd much prefer that they worked alongside Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Um, Why probably not? Well, because I think we could do it a lot better together and actually achieve far better outcomes. Why do you think they are so interesting? Oh, because I think at one level, we live in a world where certain things that they want to achieve rely on the votes of individual countries and every mm. vote counts. And so are they going around building friends? Yep. And so do lots of other countries. It's not new. Right. They're interested in the South Pacific because they want to exert geopolitical influence. Yeah, they, they, and, and, and so, do, so do lots of countries. Mm. I happen to be reading David Cameron's book at the moment and he was talking about how they were mm. trying to win the, the rights to host the Football World Cup in 2018 and they had to go with a begging bowl to lots of countries. Mm. And by the way, FIFA, you know, through lots of interesting outcomes, didn't give it to I'm them. I'm not sure that we should be holding <laughs> FIFA up as some sort of paragon no, of responsible no, no. behaviour. Yeah. Look, I'm just simply saying, I, I, look, I'm not naive to these things. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're not building their military capability, they have, yeah. but they're increasing as a superpower, and bluntly, as most countries get wealthier, they do do that. Speaking of military capability, yep. I wanted to play you a little grab from Rodney Jones, sure. the China analyst yep. and economist from Wigram Capital Partners. We had him on the show a couple of months ago yep. in April, asked him about the changing dynamics in the Pacific, and he said New Zealand needed to reconsider the way it funds its military. Have a listen to this. We clearly need to fortify our independent foreign policy, and that means doing things we haven't done before. Like what? Well, I think we need to look at our military spending. We need to think about our security. We've thought in terms of foreign policy as trade. We have to think, think in terms of foreign policy as security first and trade second. That means things like buying drones for the, to, with the P-8s so we can patrol our EEZ. We, can, um, we may want to build anti-ship capability so we can enforce the EEZ. I mean, one of the risks with the Solomons deal is not that they have a military base in the Solomons, but that we get swarms of Chinese fish fleets coming down here. It's the fishing fleets in the South China Sea that have been destabilising and that will be our risk as well. So, so just to be really clear, you think New Zealand needs to consider increasing its military capacity, buying drones and potentially buying anti-ship or anti-aircraft missiles? Yeah, we're a maritime nation. Um, we've got an enormous maritime space with our EEZ. It's now going to be contested. And all of China's moves um, in the last five years have been taking us in this direction. But now, as I said, you know, time has sped up. We've got to be prepared to defend our interests, and we can't do that with words. That's Rodney Jones. Yep. What do you think? Oh, a couple of things. Firstly, um, personally, I think Rodney's one of the best connected, smartest um, economists and, uh, and China analysts out there. Mm. So as far as I'm concerned, he's super smart and really good. We happen to disagree on a number of things when it comes to China, but, but I really rate him. Mm. 
I think he's right actually at one level, which is actually fishing rights and you know our capacity to protect our economic zone. All of those things are critically important. And actually, there's a lot of argument around the South China Seas that it's as much an argument around fishing rights and fishing capability as it is those who would argue that they're building a military launching pad and runways and mm. capacity to build out military capability. If he's saying we need to protect our, our, our AEZ and those who would illegally fish in our waters, then I agree we should absolutely do that. I don't think we should just say they'll solely be Chinese ships that would come here. Actually, there'd be many other countries that would do right. that. If he's saying in a military sense that we should feel at threat from China, I don't believe that to be the case. And actually, history wouldn't support that in a military sense they're aggressive. How do you think New Zealand is managing the relationship with China at the moment? To be fair, I think they're trying. Um, there's some mixed messages that come out. I mean, my advice to the government would be simply this. Look, ultimately, um, we have very important and critical historical relationships, our five eyes partners, the United States, the UK, Canada, Australia, everyone knows that. But actually, we do have a very critical relationship with, with China, partly because we're part of Asia, partly because they're our largest mm. trading partner, partly because they're the only country in the world, in my view, that will emerge as a superpower that will be there alongside the United States in terms of significance and influence in the world. So the question is, you know, Will we solve every every issue that people have? Will we get agreement from China on every issue that we might want to take um, some some cause about and, and some concern about? The answer is no. But we're much more likely to have a more influence and a better relationship and, and actually achieve change if we have a respectful relationship. So mm. the question is, you know, do you want to get do you want to go on one side? I mm. personally think no. Do you want to start calling names and increasing the rhetoric? I mean, Australia's done that. It's had a far more aggressive uh, relationship with Australia. I think it's uh, sorry with China. I think Australia would be far more critical of New Zealand yeah. actually that we're not but not being loud enough in what we're saying. But really, is is that the smartest thing we're going to do? And even with the United States, I mean, the blunt reality is I, I was the person along with the you know, leader government that actually got a free trade agreement with the United States, and by the way, they ripped it up. So we've got one with China, and our government extended it with all parts of, of mm -hmm. one China. So all I'm saying to you is that I'm not saying there are not some issues. I'm not saying those mm. issues shouldn't be resolved. I'm not saying the government shouldn't raise those issues mm. from human rights to, to abuses that it might want to see or contest. Mm. But what I'm saying to you is you, you, you have a couple of options in life. You either do it from sort of inside the tent where mm. you can have a respectful relationship or you do it from outside. And I, I just don't see what a country the size of New Zealand gets from being outside. One last China question for yeah. you. It's very interesting domestically at the moment, and I think back to those famous comments you made in September yeah. last year when you described New Zealand's elimination mm -hmm. approach to COVID-19 as yeah. uh, putting us in a, quote, hermit kingdom. Yeah, the hermit kingdom, yeah. Yes. A year on, yeah. China is still pursuing elimination. Yeah, that's China wrong. is pursuing that's zero wrong. COVID. Yeah, yeah that's... Is China a hermit kingdom? Well, <laughs> a very large one if it is, but I don't agree with I don't agree with their response. Look, the reality Are is Are they a hermit kingdom? Well, probably a very large one, yeah. I mean I'm more than happy to You could you compete in New Zealand and yeah. North Korea. Yeah. yeah. Well, look the here's the truth of it, is that the elimination of the way that they're trying to do it mm. will not work. And the reason it won't work is because the, the virus has changed in its nature mm. and it's gone from being more difficult to catch but more potent mm. to f 
far easier to catch mm. and less potent. And in the same way that you know New Zealand you know had incursions was always going to get them with Omicron, and now it's kind mm. of everywhere in New Zealand. The same is going to be true in China. Now they can lock that down a lot more, but uh, you have to ask why are they doing it. And I guess the answer is they believe they have such a vast population and not enough healthcare services to deal with it. But personally, I think it's a failed strategy. Last couple of questions. Yeah. Very quickly, has inflation peaked in New Zealand? Uh, possibly. I mean, I think if you look at what's driving it, yeah. supply chain issues with China, well, they could get better or worse subject to the Taiwan yeah. issue and everything else. It's oil prices. They're, they're, they're definitely easing back. But inflation is, for the most part, mm. driven off expectations. What do people think is going to happen out there? Now, given what's happening in the housing market in New Zealand, it's really, it is really slowing down, and, mm. and actually house prices have been decreasing, I think you will take some pressure off the system. So my guess is you'll see the Reserve Bank raise rates a little more, possibly less than what they've been mm. possibly anticipating. Um, and I, I suspect a lot of what we perceive to be inflation is baked into our expectations now. Christopher Luxon's leadership out yeah. of 10, what do you give him? Yeah, I'm going to give him a 10 and, uh, and, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because if you go back and have a look at the polls and, and, uh, and say on balance, I mean one individual poll, whatever, you would be up and down. But, but overall, um, it's a remarkable feat to have got to where he's got to in such a short space of time. Secondly, he's got clarity of thought about what he wants to achieve um, and certainly their economic policies. He's pulling together a good team. So, mm. yeah, of course... Some of push back yeah. on the clarity around some of the economic well, policies this week. But, yeah, 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 I understand. But, you, look, you're always going to get these armories and you're always going to get errors and things that go wrong. And, and when you're in the middle of it, you sometimes sit back and you think, how on earth did that happen? You know, I get all that. I understand. Yeah. But that's part of the scrutiny of politics. And by the way, it just never goes away. For as long as you're in that job, you will get it. But has he put National in a position where it's a credible candidate to win the election next year? I think 100%. And if that's the test of a good leader, then I'm giving him a 10. No surprises there. That's former Prime Minister Sir John Key. After the break on Q&A, the National Party has just appointed someone new to one of its most important roles. We're going to take you live to the conference next. Hōki mai we welcome back to Q&A. The National Party has a new president. A short time ago, the party announced Sylvia Wood in the role, taking over from Peter Goodfellow. One News senior political reporter Benedict Collins is with us now live from the National Party's annual conference in Ōtautahi Christchurch. Kia ora, Benedict, give us the details. Morena Jack here, that's right, so just a short time ago uh, National announced that its new president was Sylvia Wood. Now she uh, gave a short address uh, to National Party um, members who are gathered here and she said look the goal has to be on winning in 2023 and she said in order to do that they really need to target the party vote and in order to win the party vote they need to be unified and they need to be disciplined and those are two things the National Party has really struggled with in recent times. Now Sylvia Wood she's taking over from Peter Goodfellow who's been in the role uh, for 13 years as party president. And yesterday, uh, your previous guest, Sir John Key, and others sort of beamed in via video link, praising him for his work in this role. But he has increasingly become quite a controversial figure. And that's after the catastrophic defeat that National suffered in 2020, where they didn't really raise enough money, but also um, they had that just horrendous ability to sort of bring in misfits and deviants in as candidates and MPs through their candidate selection process, which the board oversees. I mean, we had MPs sending 
pornographic messages to, to young people, MPs leaking you know, the private health data of New Zealanders to the, to the media. Things really went astray there. And he's become quite a controversial mm. figure. And he also, interestingly, he didn't actually announce his intention to step down as president until after nominations had closed. And, and a lot of people in the National Party are pretty disappointed about that as well. Morris Williamson, a former MP for the National Party, he described it as a real move by Peter Goodfellow there to protect the old boys network that sit on the board there. So you're still quite a controversial figure. Christopher Luxon will be addressing the party conference later today. Benedict, what are you expecting? Yeah, well, One News understands that the National Party is really going to be focusing in on addressing sort of long-term unemployment. Now, we did a story a couple of nights ago um, with Christopher Luxon on this, in which they looked at the number of um, young people aged between 18 and 24 who had spent more than a year on the unemployment benefit or on the, on the job seeker benefits, as they're now called. Now, National's really concerned that the numbers are growing there, but kind of a fascinating detail there, and we put this to Christopher Luxon, was, hey, a lot of these people actually have serious you know, health issues or disabilities um, and Christopher Luxon didn't understand that he, he thought there was a separate benefit um, for people with health and disability issues and, and actually they, they are included under the job seeker numbers so it was kind of fascinating that he didn't know that and I think that kind of reflects someone who hasn't been in Parliament very long. Mm. Yeah it's going to be really interesting to see what he has to say especially if there's some new policy in that space. Thank you so much for your time Benedict that is One yeah. News senior political Welcome. reporter Benedict Collins, who's covering the National Party Conference in Autotahi Christchurch. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like. You can find us on Twitter, or if you prefer, hit us up on Facebook. Coming up, what might a new mayor mean for Auckland's port? And just how likely is it that some of New Zealand's most valuable land could be freed of shipping containers and used cars? It is one of the biggest infrastructure issues facing Auckland and New Zealand for that matter. What should happen to Auckland's port and what should replace it? TVNZ business correspondent Katie Bradford spoke to Auckland's four leading mayoral candidates about their intentions for the prime waterfront space. The dreams are big, the bright lights of Sydney, the delights of Singapore or the man-made beaches and leisure activities of Brisbane. Auckland's mural candidates all have a vision for what these 140 acres at the harbour could look like. But there's a lot to move out of the way first. A car terminal, containers and a machine or two. What do you think when you look out at this? Uh, well, I'm embarrassed. How could you not be embarrassed? It really is a disgrace in every way. It doesn't add to our economy, doesn't pay a dividend, doesn't pay anything towards rates, kills its staff just wasted $600 million on a failed automation project and it stops Auckland seeing the enjoying the Waitemata Harbour and the, and the people of, of uh, Parnell are staring at a great stack of empty boxes. In the short term, the ratepayer-owned port needs cleaning up. All four mayoral candidates agree when it comes to its management. Workplace deaths and the failed automation attempt are all hanging over the port like a dark cloud. But in the past couple of years, it's also been an economic dead weight. Global supply chain problems only partly to blame for a drop in profits and dividends to Auckland Council. 
It has been underperforming. I think it's uh, important that workers can go to works and be safe. And I think it's important that Auckland Council um, gets uh, its due um, performance from that, um, from that asset. It's a pivotal piece of Auckland infrastructure and I think we want to get it to a point where it's returning a really decent dividend to Aucklanders. We've invested so much into the port over many years. I'm still concerned around their health and safety issues. It returns nothing to the city and it's so badly managed. It is a dysfunctional company. It should be starting to make a profit, uh, pay to be where it is, be, become efficient. Former Northland Mayor Wayne Brown led a 2018 study that found the port should move to Northport. But he also wants these trucks off the road and onto rail. The cars can go straight away and then you've got time to think about it. But it, but it costs a lot less in, in, to use an existing port than creating a new one. And, and nothing will cost as much as the mad idea of Manukau Harbour. That 2018 study was one of multiple reports, all laying out different options. A Transport Ministry study in 2020 gave the port at Auckland a lifetime of 30 years, with the decision needing to be made in 15 to 20 years. It suggested Manukau Harbour as the preferred option, with the Firth of Thames as the second one, a new port at Kawakawa Bay. The government's now throwing nearly $4 million on a feasibility study for the Manukau option. No one a fan of the government's proposal to send these containers to that harbour. It's a bizarre notion. I mean, the shifting sands in the bar there mean you'd have a full-time dredge working 24-7. It's unsafe. It's a particularly nasty bar. So you don't think Northland is the answer? Well, Northland's got problems. They've only got 750 metres of berthage and it could be doubled technically if they've got a resource consent change. He thinks the Firth of Thames sending containers on road and rail through Drury is the best option. But there's no such urgency from Afiso Collins and Viv Beck, both taking a more diplomatic approach. They want to consult the public and saying there's 10 or 15 years before it needs to be moved. I know that the Firth of Thames has been suggested, or Nehunga as well. But look, those are discussions we're going to need to have with the Crown and Iwi because it's important that when it does move, Aucklanders can be guaranteed that they're going to uh, get the best return from their investment. I think there are other experts that can be determining the location. That's not something I'm focusing on right now. Expanding Tauranga, another option. Whatever is chosen, it's going to be expensive. Costly rail and road improvements will be needed. And central government and the council will need to sit around the table and miraculously come to an agreement. So let's head back to the dreams, the hopes, the vision of these candidates. Malloy's thought up plans for a $10 billion multi-purpose stadium. Imagine if you had one here right beside your public transport hub, right beside Britomart, a multi-sport stadium, multi-functional multi-sport culture, music. The controversy over Christchurch Stadium not phasing him and his confident developers will jump at the opportunities the harbour offers up. No one else so keen on the idea of a stadium, far preferring mixed-use activities. Are Aucklanders losing out by not using this prime land for other things, though? Yeah, I think they are. You just need to look to South Bank parts of Dubai and you'll see the glorious uh, opportunities. But you don't have to travel halfway across the world to see those opportunities. In fact, take a short stroll down the road to the bustling viaduct. It wasn't that long ago it looked like this. Old fishing boats and warehouses painting a gloomy picture. But spurred on by the excitement of the 1999 America's Cup, it was transformed. So does it feel like a half-finished waterfront?
this will be great to open up. There's major commercial activity, public activity we could have. I know there's talk of a cultural centre that would be fantastic. And just boardwalk right along. Imagine cafes, there could be the opportunities for housing development. This is a marvellous opportunity, but we're talking about 15, 20, 40 years on. I see magnificent land and potential. Uh, this really is... Um probably the highest value land we've got and the best opportunity uh, but I think there's some things we need to think about before we think about what might go on it. And it wouldn't be a mayoral campaign without a bit of a dig at other candidates. I would love to work on the vision for that land but I would like Aucklanders to come on that journey and I, I just think something like a stadium at the moment worries me as being sort of a gold-plated vanity project when there are so many issues that need addressing. It won't be sold under my administration, not at all. These are people who run bars and what have you, are telling me, an engineer, and who did, did a report with people from the shipping industry, the rail industry and the trucking industry, where we should go with these things. Some also wanting a legacy project. And when would we see this? You will see it in 2034, which will be the last year that I'll be mayor, it'll be about 12th year, and you'll see it in 2034. I will cut the ribbon, open the games, and then hand, I will probably resign on the day and hand the mayoralty over to someone more appropriate. And I'd like a beach out here, I'd like Brown's Beach out here. Your legacy to be a, a beach named after you. <laughs> oh, that's a laugh. My legacy will be people are enjoying the harbour. And I think if we could have whatever we want right now, we'd, we'd, we'd click our fingers and have it. I think we've got to have some reality here. The reality for these candidates, 15 years might feel like a long time, but it'll also take a long time to shift this port. That is TVNZ business correspondent Katie Bradford with that report. After the break, a profound interview with Oscar Kitely as he reflects on the legacy of the Dawn Raids. They were such extraordinary times that I think an apology requires extraordinary compensation. Very few New Zealand plays ever get restaged. But next week, 25 years since it was first performed, Oscar Kitely's Dawn Raids will take to the stage once again. For Kitely, it's an opportunity to reflect on the place of the Dawn Raids in our history, the significance of the government's official apology and progress that has and hasn't been achieved. At the same time, Kitely is pursuing another career. The playwright wants to be a local body politician. I want to start with the contrast. Take me back 25 years, oh. <laughs> if you can. What was the New Zealand attitude to the Dawn Raids at the time you penned this play? Forget about it. There was none, because no one talked about it. And it was something that happened in the 70s that maybe sp split into the 80s. But it was part of our history, like so much of New Zealand history. It's like it's happened. No one was doing stuff about it. There was no docos about it. There was no social media for a start. Mm. Um, there was no... And I, I thought actually by writing something on the Dawn Raids and, and putting it out there in the form of a play that maybe that would start discussion because it, was, it seemed like such a heavy thing to have happened in our recent past mm. and no one talked about it and so I thought maybe the play might do that but it didn't. Really? <laughs> nah, we had one, see, oh I, I mean in, do, in doing publicity for it, you know, we yeah. talked about it but there was no kind of thing after. And this play which we performed at the end of the 1900s it's only been done twice, the first season in Auckland and then we did a season in Christchurch the year uh, later. So the fact that it's coming back 25 years later 
maybe at a time when New Zealand is ready to talk about it. You know, there's been the apology. Um, there was the Panthers series recently. There has been more awareness, I think, from young people. And also a general waking upness, um, socially and politically. So maybe now, but it feels like back then, people thought it was a work of fiction. Yeah. You know, that uh, these dramatic Samoan actors were just putting something dramatic on. Right. Um, but there was no attitude towards it. There was no one discussing it. There was no one feeling bad about it. There were no politicians. It was something that sa the Pacific community, Samoan, Tonga and Fiji mainly, because we were the ones who yeah. were deported, we just had to deal with it on our own as a, as a bad memory that we just had to put to the past, and that's why I wanted to write it. Okay, talk, talk to me a bit more about that. So there's basically no prominence when it comes to New Zealand society at large, but just how prominent were the Dawn Raids in your life and the experience of your community? Huge, because I was four when I arrived in this country and they were on, and even though I was only a little kid, it was even I'd heard about them at the time. It was just this really yuck thing that was happening that was affecting the air outside your house, that affected the, the attitude towards you from non-Samoans, non-Pacific people. Um, so we knew about it. When we tried to ask our parents about it, they wouldn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, because they came here wanting to be, wanting to add to this country and, and contribute and bringing up something so awful seems like being a bad guest, you know, but this, you know, now we're more than guests, we're part of the population, we're part of the landscape, part of the country and maybe only now is the time when, you know, with the apology a couple of years ago, maybe only this is when all that stuff had to happen. Mm. You know, now New Zealand history is going to be taught in schools, including the Dawn Raids. They weren't even teaching Māori history, they weren't even teaching about the New Zealand wars back then. So. I feel like the, the renaissance, I think, I hope it's a renaissance, but the increasing of awareness towards tangata whenua and, and the past and things that needed to be discussed and righted, I think that has actually helped shed light on things that happened to other communities as well. Renaissance is a fancy word. You called it waking upness yeah. first, which, yeah. which I really like. What role have you played in that? No matter what's been going on in New Zealand, I feel like we've always had artists who contributed, who, who talked about things. And even the 90s, which politically was such a weird time, I feel like the first half of the 90s, the country was getting over Rogernomics and adjusting itself. And that weird 90s national government, it was kind of strange. Um, there was no supports for the arts, but there were still artists, there were still great companies making work. I only learnt about Samoa's struggle for freedom from New Zealand as a 21-year-old when I read the book. <laughs> and I was like, what? What does this happen? And so that kind of put me on a, 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 you know, in terms of knowing about New Zealand's colonial history with Samoa and then this. So I, I, was, I was an angry young man, very sensitive, very intense, and I, I wanted to shake, you know, m me and all my friends and all in our company, we, we wanted to tell stories about us going up. Mm because I, f I, felt, I felt like we were invisible. This was before all the stuff that we now take for granted. You know, the internet had only just started two years earlier. Mm. This was before all that stuff. And um, we wanted to make a noise. We wanted to say, we are here. We're part of this country. And these are some of the things that would do you well to know as well. Mm. What did you think of the apology? 
It was important. I was there. It had to happen. How did it feel hearing those words, watching that scene play out? It was emotional. It was um, it was quite beautiful, and especially the symbolic way they did it. You know, with the ifonga, with the fine mat being placed over the prime minister, and in the moment that you picked it up and lift, that was we accepted it. Whether you accept it personally or not, it didn't matter. In that moment where he lifted that offer, that was the Samoan community going, okay, we accept your apology. But they were so insidious and they had such a horrible effect that still carry on now. They were such extraordinary times that I think an apology requires extraordinary compensation. It's like we felt really bad that this happened. You know, it's not just, oh, we said sorry and acknowledged it. It should have been, there should have been pathways for overstayers at the moment, Pacific overstayers at the moment who have been living in fear for years. There should be pathways for them to, as a recognition, you know, there should be easier pathways for Pacific people. You know, we've got a worker and, per and people shortage. Pacific's like the, you know, it's like the last place we look to. There's people right in our backyard, baristas, you know, lawyers, doctors, we just go, oh, fruit pickers. It's like the last thing. It's like, okay, we'll get, let some in to pick fruit. You know, but, and it's been a real boon for our agriculture industry and also for the villagers that take part. But I feel like there should have been extraordinary compensation because there, there were extraordinary times and I would have liked to have seen that, not just a million dollars for young people to learn about the raids. Mm. You know, it needed to, so, so that people who didn't think they were a big deal actually sat up and went, oh shit, well if the government's doing this, you know, actually what was that about? You know, what, 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 what was the horrible things that happened? When I think about your work, mm. there are some interesting contrasts. And a lot of your work over the years has used humour really effectively. And it's interesting to contrast a play like Dawn Raids with something like Brotown or Sioni's Wedding. And I wonder if you have found humour to be a more effective vehicle in kind of subtly getting your message to a big audience. Yeah, totally. Sweet, good. And um, Dawn Road was a part of that because yeah. it was, I was, I spent a year working on it. It was meant so much to me, it was really for, older Pacific Islanders, that's the audience I wanted, and also young ones, to kind of sh to tell them what happened. And I, I was really quite intense and just uh, got one bad review, Jack, <laughs> and it just about ended me. I couldn't write for a year, I almost gave up. And I, but actually I changed my approach after that. I was like, man, Pakehas kind of don't like hearing this stuff when you're kind of uh, presented on stages as as truth. But Dawn Raids is still a very funny play. Yeah. That was just me. But uh, but yeah, after that it was like, man, stuff doing the serious stuff that people might get the wrong idea about. I'm going to do comedy, but the comedy ended up about serious stuff. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, I'm going to do comedy about nothing that matters. I just want to make people laugh. It was, you know. Did you ever worry that your comedy might overstep a line and you might do damage to your communities? Did you ever worry about things like stereotyping or characters that might end, end up having some sort, of, some sort of a negative impact on your I community? I didn't really because 
that whole thing about stereotyping came from others. Mm. They look at your work and they add the label stereotype. I look at the work and I see characters that I knew and played that we developed from real people we knew and lives we knew. Mm. Other people look and go, ah, oh, stereotype. Yeah. And I don't accept that. So just because someone calls your stuff stereotyped or whatever, if that's not the place that you come from, mm. you know, it's not like, it's not like I'm not of the community where, uh, like someone like uh, Chris Lilly. Yeah, right. You know, I hate to bag other artists. No, no, I get it. But he's a Pākehā Australian doing something like Jonah from Tonga. And that's obviously coming from outside that world. Whereas if a Tongan did that show, you know, it would have, I think, more. Yeah. And I feel like I'm telling stories about things and people I know and one way to shut those stories down is to throw the labels like stereotype at it mm. and to try and dismiss it in that way. So I've never worried about damaging my community because that's not why I do it. Mm. Yeah, I hate that. It's kind of a real thing. It's like I can't talk about Brotown now do without you like somebody that? saying... Oh, but didn't it do this and didn't it do that? And it's like, well, for, for it was like word, Billy T. Sorry, if I yeah, sorry. it was like Billy T. I remember him saying, "Never compare any of us to the great Billy T." I remember seeing him in an interview saying he was he, he was hurt at, when people said that his characters were stereotypes because to him they were people he knew, mm. you know, the the sheep shearer with the singlet. Mm. That wasn't. He didn't sit in a room and go, "I know, I'll do a Maori sheep shearer." and make him talk like this. He was playing characters. Yeah. We'd never seen those characters before on screen. I, I guess I just wondered if it was a tension that you, that you are, are aware of yes. as a writer and as an artist. I'm aware of it because I always get asked about it. <laughs> um, Sorry. And I hate having to defend it because I don't think other artists get asked the same thing. You know, why can't Samoans write plays about characters that are real people. Why do non-Samoans go, oh, you're stereotyping? Mm. You know what I mean? It's, everyone can watch Godfather and know that not all Italian Americans are in the mafia. Yeah. Why does everything, why does our stuff have to be a documentary that has to reflect true life, that has to reflect absolutely every aspect of our community? They're just stories. Dawn Raids is a, is a play about this one family's response to the dawn raids. Mm. Um, Brotown was uh, about a group of teenage friends, 14 year olds growing up in the city, mm. being surrounded by less than ideal adults and role, and role models, but still finding a life through it, you know? And, you know, I, I just, yeah, it's a, so I, I am aware of it. Mm. I totally reject it. And it annoys me that our stories get that sort of pressure on them, mm. you know? It's the same with, I think, Māori stuff. It has, to, it, sometimes, things can't just exist in itself. Yeah, right. You know, no one watches Simpsons and goes, oh, Americans from that part of America aren't all simple folk. No, no one thinks that. Yeah. It's about this family called the Simpsons. Yeah. And I hate that our stuff gets, that lens applied to it and that it can't just exist as a story about these characters. Oh, here's another story about these characters. Oh, here's another story. Yeah. It's like we make one thing and it has to re somehow represent all of us when it can't possibly do that. Where does that criticism come from? I don't know. I've never thought about that. I think it's... 
I don't know, you'd have to ask the people that do that kind of criticising. Because it's not for me to figure out where their criticism comes from. Mm. I can hazard a guess and say, well, it's because they're from outside the community. They see it through surface, superficial mm. lens. Mm. And then they apply that superficial lens to stuff that's a lot deeper and actually seeks to go further than that. It's interesting that you feel like if you, you take the... This just, I know this is, this is a, um, too basic a description, but if you take the more serious path in the production of a piece like Dawn Raids, then it struggles to get the cut through historically in the way that you hoped it would. But then if you go down a path for a different kind of story, like Sionnes or like Brotown or something like that, you, you perhaps reach a broader audience and it holds a special place for a broader audience but you still face a criticism that you're not doing right I'm not right trying to write people. for a broad audience. Yeah. You know, I don't think of a piece of art and go, I want the broadest possible audience. Although you do want to change people's minds when it comes to something like Dawn Raids. You do want people to wake up. That was at least part of the original goal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you should never... You should never homogenise yeah. your story. And, you know, I, I remember I, I went to this course by this LA script guru and we were working on a Brotown movie mm. and I asked him a question. I said, how do you make a local movie, you know, a success globally? Mm. And his answer was, you make it as specific as possible to the local culture. Because it's authenticity, Because eh? it's authenticity. If you try and write something that's broad because the author wants, to, wants you to learn something important, <laughs> they think, oh, yeah. that's another word I hate, important. Come and yeah. see this important story. The audience should judge what's important. Yeah. You know, I think as artists, all you can do is tell the stories with, with heart and truth and mm. as much authenticity as you can muster. But also comedy is... The comedy in Dawn Raids isn't to make it palatable, it's to actually reflect the people too, yeah. the characters, you know. We did make jokes about the raids because they were a way of coping. Mm. There were some people that rang up and dobbed their relatives in if their niece was or nephew was misbehaving. Mm. You know, it was, and in the course of my research, I found all this stuff. It wasn't just bad white people, oppressed brown people. Yeah. Who's, who wants to watch that for an hour and a half on stage? Um, you talked about reparations before, and I, I wondered about one particular issue when it comes to the Pacific at the moment. I'm just starting to see the shoots of conversations um, around the bleakest of scenarios in climate change. And we, we interviewed the Tuvalu foreign minister a few weeks ago, and he was telling us how in his country the conversation is very much moving to a place where they're discussing what nationhood means if they don't have a physical landmass that is inhabitable what nationhood means if you don't have a nation and i wondered if you had a position about the role that aotearoa should play in the coming decades if indeed we face the worst case scenario when it comes to climate change and the responsibility that we have to our Pacific. I think matters. we do have a responsibility. It's interesting with this whole geopolitical struggle over the Pacific. Mm. You know, it's, I feel like New Zealand and Australia kind of treated it like it's a place we still go for holiday. Mm. And now that all these big powers are kind of jostling for position over who has more say in it, mm. um, now we're getting more involved and more concerned, which is, I feel quite patronising when, like, these are nations, these are sovereign states. Samoa is 3,000 years old. 
way older than New Zealand. Mm. And we treat them like the little kid who needs help with their homework mm. in our backyard. Um, I think New Zealand definitely has a role. You can't colonise as much of the South Pacific as we did. You can't have that relationship with the Cook Islands, with Tokelau, with Niue, um, a special relationship with Samoa, and then be hands off when the biggest disaster that is hitting us is unfolding. South Pacific especially, climate, ch climate change isn't an argument anymore on those islands. And I think New Zealand has a role. And that's an interesting question you raise. And when we get to that part when all of Tuvalu have to leave and resettle in Australia and New Zealand, you know, when there's no physical bit of land, you know, a tūranga waiwai that they can hark back to. I think that's an interesting question, but I think New Zealand has a huge responsibility. We can't, we were so, we, we were desperate to be a colonial power. We begged Britain to move in and take over New Zealand from the Germans. Um, we can't pick and choose when we're family. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're either, you're either, it means something that we're part of a special neighborhood. That's why, you know, I think there should be free movement like there is in Europe. I don't know if there ever will be. And I know this damages the islands too, because, you know, a lot of population, if they can come here, they would. You know, you look at New Air's population. Mm. But, yeah, I, answer, I think we do have a massive, and, you know, 60% of the Pacifica population of New Zealand were born here. You know, just through that link alone. Yeah. Um, and you've got so many, and, and you know, my niece is the MP for Mana. You know, there's, the Pacific Caucus is growing. I don't think politically the community would ever let New Zealand not feel that obligation. Mm. And whoever's in power. Mm. You're running for local board. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a Henderson Massey local board. <laughs> I think I am. Why, why, do you, why do you want to run? I want to help. I want to serve. Henderson Massey is a, the area I'm running for. It's got a big Pacific population. It's never had a Pacific Island member. Mm. It's 2022. Mm. Um, I was asked, and I'm always banging on about Pacific people getting involved, voting and standing so when i was asked i kind of felt the need to put my body where you know i can't just be all talk about it no time but it is a part-time job you know it should it shouldn't be a part-time it shouldn't be a full-time cushy position it should be a thing that you do in addition on top of your life you already have to to serve your surrounding community and i've always been interested ever since i was a cadet reporter and got sent to cover council meetings that I thought would be as boring as anything, and weren't. Mm. I was like, wow, this is, these people make these decisions? Mm. That dude in the suit is like, runs the city? Yeah. You know? Um, so as a journal, I've learnt a lot about the world and New Zealand, and it was just something that was always in my head that if I ever did do something, it would be at local government. That is Oscar Kitely. Dawn Raids opens on the 18th of August at Auckland's ASB Waterfront Theatre. It's being staged by Pacific Underground and Auckland Theatre Company and you can get tickets at atc.co.nz. Hey, our Q&A. Q&A is back after the break.
Kumatu. That is Q&A for this week. From our team, thank you for watching. And Namihi Kia Koto Inga Karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey Tera Wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on air.